Buford.org. WAGP Buford. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome questions that you may have. If you have a particular issue in your life or ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on. Well, if we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone again locally, 525-1859. We have a toll-free number that you can use for our internet listeners, and that number is 877-WAGP980. A lot of people also email us directly into the studio. We don't always get to all the email questions because we give priority to live callers, but the email address is tbl for the Bible line at WAGP.net. And when you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we'd be happy to receive it in that fashion. Rick, as always, it's great to be here this morning for the Bible line. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've got a number of questions that have come in over the last few days, some left over from last week, but we always give preference to live callers, and we have one standing by now, so let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. How you doing, Brother Carl? Doing well, thank you. Thanks for calling. I'll just give you a call um, concerning Reformed theology, and you'll probably be able to explain to the listeners Calvinism. Um, would where would what would you determine Calvinism? Would you consider it a heretical doctrine when the doctrine basically says that? Christ's blood or death on the cross was not sufficient for everyone. I think that's a a very dangerous doctrine. I just want to, you know, hear your input on that. Great. Uh, When you use the term Reformed theology, it's a big, broad topic, and I'm getting ready to deal with a message concerning that later on in this month as we approach Reformation Day, which, of course, was October 31st. Uh, That was the day that Martin Luther tacked his 95 assertions or theses to the door at the church in Wittenberg, where he felt like the Roman church, which for the time was the organized church, the visible organized church, had deviated from Holy Scripture. But the term Reformed theology is kind of like the term charismatic. You ask someone today, well, are you a charismatic Christian? What they typically sensed by that is, do you speak in tongues or, you know, those uh, sign gifts or certain dramatic uh, arts that are accompanied with the charismatic movement? But in one sense, they've robbed the term from us because every Christian is a charismatic Christian if you believe that God gives spiritual gifts to his people, and indeed he does. So the same is true with Reformed theology. Remember, the Reformers are those who are coming out of Catholicism and uh, they are protesting against the doctrines of Rome, and so they are dubbed Protestants by Roman Catholics. Uh, in either case, um, there is a lot of things that they taught, 
that people who are not necessarily Calvinistic in some of their theology, like the Anabaptists, which were another group in and of itself, a lot of things they differed with John Calvin on in terms of the ordinances uh, and so forth, yet you would call them reformers. So the, the term has been robbed of its, I think, initial historical meaning. And today when you say, well, I believe in Reformed theology, you're usually saying, well, I line up with John Calvin on A, B, C, and D. And, and let me just say that the one issue that you highlight here, because Calvinism is a big subject. Usually when people say, are you a Calvinist, they're asking you a question just in terms of the doctrine of salvation or what we call soteriology. Soto is the word, Greek word to save. And uh, so we speak of soteriology, but actually the doctrines of Calvinism uh, integrate every major realm of theology. Calvin had a certain view on ecclesiology, the church, and how we are to perceive it and, and so forth. But in reference to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, I would say today that most, uh, quote unquote, Calvinists are more Calvinistic than John Calvin was. I don't believe for a moment that John Calvin himself held to the doctrine of limited atonement or sometimes what is called a particular atonement. Sometimes in terms of soteriology, the uh, five points of Calvinism Calvinism are mentioned and they're summarized in the uh, acrostic tulip, T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. Limited atonement is something clearly that John Calvin's Calvin's followers had embraced and taught, a number of them. Uh, But I don't think John Calvin embraced those. In fact, my son, when he was at Liberty University, he's at Harvard Law School now, but when he was at Liberty, he wrote a fantastic paper on why John Calvin didn't believe in limited atonement. I thought it was very well done. And of course, he went to Calvin's own sources, his own commentaries, and everything else. Yeah, I have a great deal of problem with the doctrine of limited atonement. Um, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call it a heresy in the sense that it's a heresy like someone who denies the deity of Christ or, you know, the virgin birth or something like that. There are Christian people, obviously, who embrace it. Uh, I think it may be something that they have logically deduced But I do not think for one moment that anyone just looking at the plain reading of Scripture would come up with the doctrine of limited atonement. That is that Jesus didn't die for everyone. If people are listening, they say, well, what are you talking about? The doctrine of limited atonement says that Jesus didn't die for everyone, but he died only for those who would believe, only for the quote-unquote elect. And so the practical implications of that is they don't believe that you can engage a conversation with a total stranger and look at them in the eye and say, you know, Christ died for you. He really loves you. He redeemed you with his own precious blood, and he wants to save you today. No, all the terminology that they use is couched very carefully uh, with words like, well, Jesus died for those who would repent and believe. Uh, so I don't, I don't believe that. I believe the atonement of Christ was for all people. And when we come to Romans chapter 5, we are working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse through Romans. Uh, I'm not sure how many messages I'll preach out of Romans 5, uh, probably another 5 or 6, which we've been averaging a, a chapter. But in the latter half of Romans 5, Paul makes a comparison between Christ's death and Adam's sin. And 
we'll look not only at this passage, but other passages, and we will address the doctrine of limited atonement. But let me just uh, briefly uh, quote a couple verses from that chapter. He says, um, he's making again a, a, a comparison, and he said, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. How is Adam a type, a picture of him who is to come? Well, he says, For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. He's saying, listen, Adam's one act of sin resulted in death to the whole human race. People can't escape death. There's no exceptions to that. One act affected the whole race. And his point is, is that through the one act of Jesus Christ, the whole race was affected. Then he goes on to say, and and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. From the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, referring to Adam's sin, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to some men, no, all men, even so through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, again, he's qualified without question that that justification of life that Christ provided through his one act of death and resurrection on the cross only becomes good for you when you believe. But understand that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes not only the basis of our salvation, but it also becomes the basis of God's condemnation on the unbeliever. Not only are all men condemned for their sin, they're also condemned for their unbelief. That's why Jesus said, the one who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. No one will be able to say, well, I couldn't believe if I wanted to believe because there was no provision for me to believe in. No, Christ's death provided a way of escape for all men, and it becomes part of God's basis for condemning the lost people in the final judgment. Now, I'm going to explore this in great detail and careful depth, much like I will. Romans 9, which is a passage I think often misunderstood. Um, But again, to come up with the doctrine of limited atonement, just the plain reading of Scripture would not get you there. You have, to, you have to be educated into that position. And in my opinion, there's a certain, um, I want to be careful here, but sometimes, not always, but sometimes there's a certain air of arrogance and spiritual superiority like, oh, you don't believe in the doctrine of limited atonement? You're obviously ignorant of Scripture. You're obviously uninformed. You're not cutting edge. And there, there's a certain spirit that I think has entered the reform movement of our day that I think is very unhealthy and a lot of other things with it. The reform movement is, you know, promoting alcohol uh, in its use, its free use for Christians. You know, social drinking, not drunkenness, of course, they would say, but social drinking and a lot of other issues concerning Israel and uh, covenant theology, infant baptism. There's a whole host of things. So stay with me if you're listening in Romans, whether you're a member of Community Bible Church or listening through the Monday broadcasts, uh, 
They're also online at cbcofbuford.org and downloadable. But I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call people who hold to limited atonement heretics. They're, they're brothers in Christ, but I think they're misinformed. Uh, they would think I'm ignorant and stupid and just naive, and I don't really understand the scriptures like they do. And with all the love and compassion in my heart, I, I think they're misinformed. And honestly, they are not leading the charge today in terms of evangelism and world missions. Just look at the statistics. It's not the reform movement that's raising up missionaries. And because I know you've got books like J.I. Packer, Evangelism, the Sovereignty of God, that he wrote back in the 1970s, who said, oh, the doctrine of sovereign election, it becomes a basis to share your faith. Well, the reality is it doesn't. Uh, People who are taught and trained and uh, brought up in those doctrines typically do not aggressively, uh, habitually, regularly share Christ with those who are lost. Anyway, uh, because God's going to save them anyway, so what's the big deal? And uh, they would say that's a misrepresentation, but I think statistically it proves it out. Anyone listening to me who's reformed, go ahead and look at the numbers yourself, U.S. Center for World Missions, and you look at and see how many missionaries— um, certain reform groups are drawing out into world missions. They don't even begin to compare with those who are quote unquote non-Calvinistic. Now there are doctrines of Calvinism that are true that every born again Christian embraces. So that's why I say, I want to be careful when we use the term Calvinism. There are things that John Calvin obviously taught in the doctrine of soteriology that are accurate. I have all of Calvin's uh, commentaries, and I've read his institutes. He, read, he wrote his institutes after he'd been saved two years. That's pretty remarkable to me. I don't know of any Christian who has their theology so lined up after two years that, um, you know, just to me, you got to mature a lot longer than that. Now, he added to some to the institutes, but the, the basic um, institutes uh, of Calvin— Four books usually brought together in, in, in two volumes were done within two years after he was saved and published. Anyway, something to consider and ponder. Let's go to the next question. All right. Guy from Clemson writes, have you heard of reasons to believe? They propose the idea of old earth creationism, not supporting evolution, but saying that there are gaps in the Genesis genealogies and that the earth is really much older than 6,000 years. What is your opinion of this idea? Well, uh, I'm familiar with them and their website, Reasons to Believe, and I, I don't agree with it. Now, they're, they're brothers in Christ, so I'm glad they're preaching the gospel, and for that I'm grateful. But I do not buy into their view of creation. I think what they're trying to do is bring together modern-day science that tells us the world is millions or sometimes billions of years old. And so they're trying to reconcile in their mind, well, how can the earth be uh, so old where God created it in six literal days. Uh, so they create gaps between the days uh, in Genesis. And again, I would, I would argue for a six-day creation. If the days of creation are really, you know, geologic ages of millions of years, then I think the gospel is, is undermined because, number one, it puts death and disease and thorns and suffering before the fall. And that's not something that you find in Holy Scripture. Uh, those are all things that are the result of the fall. Now, granted, there are people who also put gaps in there, and they just say, well, there's big, long days, but there is no fall. Well, 
again, you read Genesis 1 at face value, and I don't think anyone would ever come up with the ideas of millions of years. In fact, in, in every instance, when someone has not taken the days of Genesis as ordinary days, they have been influenced by things outside of Scripture, outside of Genesis 1. Let's talk about that for just a moment, not outside of the Bible, but outside of this, uh, the opening chapters of Scripture. The, the term for day is the Hebrew word yom. It's used 410 times in the Old Testament, and it always refers to an ordinary day. So why would we uh, expect Genesis 1 to be different? Um, in fact, when the word yom is used with the phrase uh, evening and morning, Again, it always is referring to a literal 24-hour day. No exceptions to that. So not only does God underscore it in Genesis 1, 38 times outside of Genesis, he uses the word evening and morning with the term day, and it always refers to a literal day. So why aren't we consistent in saying that these other days— in the Bible are, you know, long days or days with big gaps in them, and we can't be. Um, When you think about it, too, the concept of a year being 365 days uh, doesn't necessarily come from the Bible. It it comes from science. Um, You can draw that from science. It takes 365 days, thereabouts, for the uh, earth to make a complete rotation around the sun. Uh, The concept of a 24-hour day, you can find a basis for that outside of Scripture. Uh, It takes 24 hours for the earth to do a full rotation on its axis. But the concept of a week is something that God established. In six days, as recorded here in Genesis, God made the world, and on the seventh day, he rested. I think, too, what is interesting is God gives us divine commentary Uh, on the days of creation when Moses, who also wrote Genesis, uh, will pen the book of Exodus. He writes the first five books of the Bible. And he said this when he gives the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. He said, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Why? Why, Moses? Because, he says, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the basis that he gives God's people in the Old Testament for resting on Saturday, the seventh day, was the model of creation. And so he takes it as six literal days. I believe when God created the world, he created it with the appearance of age. Uh, Adam and Eve weren't little babies. They were full-grown adults. The trees in the garden weren't saplings. They were fruit-bearing trees. He created the world with the appearance of age. Now, the geologic record, I think there are other explanations that many good scientific people concur with, that a great flood uh, created some of the chasms like the Grand Canyon that people say took millions of years to form. It happened in a short period of time when the waters receded of the great flood, when God covered the whole earth with water, even the highest mountain peak, over 18 cubits above the top of it. 
And so there are other explanations for the fossil record, the way things are layered and everything else that people who are very scientific concur. But listen, if you don't know a word of science, uh, you know, I'm going to go with what God said. And I I think Christians are just too quick because they don't want to be viewed as ignorant or stupid and Oh, you don't really believe in creation, do you? And so they, you know, create gaps between the days or they embrace theistic evolution where they say, well, you know, God created the world. We don't deny that. He just used, you know, evolution to accomplish that. Well, so what do we have now? You know, do we have uh, death and disease before the fall? That's what evolution at its heart says, where the Bible, again, places it after the fall as a result of man's sin. So you cannot um, cross, you know, Mother Nature with Father God, and you'll get an illegitimate child every time you do. It's just not Bible. So I don't embrace what they're teaching. And when you undermine the early chapters of the Bible, what else can't you take at face value? What else can you just believe? And it's a slippery slope that people get on. And so, you know, I've witness schools like Wheaton College that have embraced this. And now it's a slippery slope in terms of their theology. And there's a lot of things that they once held and taught that they no longer hold and taught, teach. And I see and meet kids who are graduating out of Wheaton who are messed up theologically. Their heads have been toyed with. Granted, if someone is a true believer, I don't think they'll renounce the faith, but I see kids coming out of Wheaton College, instead of embracing Jesus and following him as Lord, they're abandoning him. Obviously, they weren't true Christians when they got there, but instead of finding support for the faith, once delivered to the saints, because of their intellectualism that, in, that, that I think is permeate, permeating that campus, they're, they're being drawn away from the faith. So it's always damaging, never healthy. I don't embrace it. Um, So we could get into that. But if you want to listen to the opening chapters on Genesis, I deal with all the different theories of creation, walk through them, pros and cons that people argue, and um, it might be really instructive to this caller. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next uh, listener writes, uh, how would you reply to a particular criticism of the authority of the New Testament that goes as follows? He's quoting, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, but by me is not what Jesus said because it is an incorrect translation due to the various ways to translate Aramaic to Greek, and uh, we don't have original Aramaic. Now, this person writes, I've never heard this argument before and don't recall it being covered in a recent Wednesday night series on bibliology that you did. However, he was talking to a medical doctor last week whose brother is a theologian with a Ph.D., and they warned the uh, doctor that uh, Nassim Haramein's quantum theory of relativity had explained in his Black Hole DVD was taking scientific theories and promoting the New Age belief that all world religions, uh, Chinese, Mayans, Kabbalah, etc., are valid religions of God by contrasting it with Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He replied with the above argument that, of course, um, because you can't translate Aramaic uh, correctly, that you can't have an exact translation. And then in another conversation later in the week, uh, this person writes, I presented the gospel to the doctor and left a, would you like to have God as your friend tracked with them? Well, you did, first of all, let me commend you. You did, first of all, what God called you to do. You looked for an open opportunity and you shared the plan of salvation 
with the individual. But, I, you know, I, I think they've entered into a black hole of theology, and people themselves look for reasons not to believe if they can find them. I was dialoguing with uh, someone on the phone just this past Saturday. I guess they had visited our church and had uh, even come to our Thursday night meet the pastor meeting. They met one of our deacons, and one of our deacons shot me an email and said, hey, you know, this person came to meet the pastor, said they had a lot of questions they didn't get answered, and would like to speak with you. So I called up this particular individual. As it turns out, he was raised in a Christian home. Uh, They were in church every Sunday. He said he memorized Bible verses. Um, You know, he was told, you know, what it was that he should believe, but he doesn't believe it anymore, doesn't believe that a Bible, we can say the Bible is the only book God ever wrote. And okay, so I listened to him for a while and I said, okay, Look, I can talk to you about evidences for the uniqueness of the Bible. And I gave him some things to think about. Though he told me he had read all these books, I said, well, you haven't heard this argument? No, I haven't heard that before. I said, well, that's pretty basic. I said, so it tells me one right off. Some of the apologetic material you're reading is uh, maybe incomplete or, you know, you haven't read stuff that's, you know, thoroughly and well done. But I said, I, I don't think that's your problem. I said, I think you're looking for a reason not to believe. I said, I think if I could answer all of your questions intellectually where you're satisfied, yeah, the Bible's the only book God wrote. There's no other book like it on the planet that has things like fulfilled prophecy and so forth. I I wrote an article for Answers in Genesis that is supposed to come out, I guess, this month at their apologetics conference, uh, How to Know the Bible is True. And I go through five unique proofs for the divine inspiration of, of scripture, uh, lay that aside. You know, this guy didn't have some of the basic things, but I said to him, look, that's not your problem. Let let me tell you what your problem is. And I, I was on my way to a wedding with my wife in North Carolina and I'm calling visitors and talking to people. And so I just quoted to him, you know, what God said in John three, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe is judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because he says their deeds were evil. For everyone who does not, who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his evil deeds should be exposed. I said, you know what I think your problem is? I said, I think your problem is you have a moral problem. I'm not going to ask you what it is, but I gave him an example of someone I'd witnessed to once at Duke University, and I'd answered this guy's questions to his complete intellectual satisfaction, and then I asked him, would you like to receive Christ as your Savior? And he said, no. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, the truth is, is I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, and I don't want to break up that relationship. That's what Jesus is saying here. And by the way, it got real quiet on the phone. Men love the darkness and don't want to come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. And I told him, I said, your problem is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. It might be drugs. It might be drunkenness. It might be illicit sexuality. But it's something that is a moral issue that is causing you to cling to the darkness rather than come out into the light. So... You know, with all with all that said, uh, one, your friend makes some presuppositions here that are inaccurate. Uh, number one, we don't know that Jesus exclusively spoke Aramaic. Now, it is true that there are Aramaic phrases that are quoted by Jesus a few times in the Bible. 
like Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But I wouldn't be at all surprised if the eternal son of God also knew Greek. Paul knew Hebrew. He knew Aramaic. He knew Greek. What makes us think that Jesus didn't necessarily know Greek? Two, you make an inference about language that's incorrect. Uh, It is true that sometimes in a particular language, there are limitations in terms of words. Like, for instance, the word love in English. We have one word for love. Are we talking about a family kind of love? Are we talking about a friendship kind of love? Are we talking about a sexual kind of love? Are we talking about some kind of unconditional type of love, emotional love? Well, the only way you can tell is by the way the uh, word is used in its context and sometimes the way the intonations are made with the human voice. And so when you say to your wife, I love you in a sexual way, it's different from what you would say to your best friend, hey, brother, I love you. It's just different. And that's clear. And context is clear. So when Jesus, for instance, uh, used different words for love in John 21, Peter, um, you know, do you love me? And there's an interchange between the Greek word phileo and agapao. And people will say, well, you know, but Jesus spoke Aramaic and there's not that distinction in Aramaic. Well, there is in terms of tonage, just like there is in, in context, just like there is in English. But lay that aside, the question becomes is, did the Spirit of God inspire the Bible? And if God the Holy Spirit inspired the whole of Scripture, and he did, then he would have picked up in the writer's pen the uh, different nuances of a word in Aramaic that he would bring into Greek. Not to mention the verse that you're quoting would read the same in Aramaic. Aramaic, there are some languages, for instance, that don't have the article. The Slavic languages, like Russian, do not have the article. And so sometimes when I'm dealing in Eastern Europe and I talk to them about the word the, and uh, I have to explain that to them, and I explain to them how the article uh, in grammar school, we called it the pointing word. If I asked you for a pen, you could give me any pen you wanted. But if I said, would you please give me the pen, then you know I'm referring to a specific kind of pen or a specific pen that I have in my my thinking. Well, in Greek, there's the article, and there is an Aramaic too, so it would read the same, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But even if it didn't read the same, the Spirit of God who inspired the book used the article. And Jesus himself, of course, claims to be God, and there are other passages in the Bible other than John 14, 6, that speak of the fact that there is no redemption outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, unless you believe that I am he, you're going to die in your sin. If you don't believe that he is God, the Savior of the world, you'll die in your sin. That's another way of saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he said, and there is salvation in no one else, referring to Jesus. He's been preaching all about Jesus. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's another way of saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we could go through scores of parallel texts without any kind of so-called linguistic argument that this guy made up and invented and isn't even true. 
But again, it comes down to, is the Bible the Word of God? Did the Spirit of God inspire the Bible? If he did, then he inspired it perfectly. It's authoritative. So that's the fundamental question that we have to ask because he chose to use Greek. And one of the reasons he chose to use Greek in writing the New Testament is because it's so refined and precise a language. And in many passages, the focus is really brought tight where it can refer to absolutely nothing else or anything else. And uh, that's the beauty of, of, of Greek. Anyway, I hope that answers your question, gets your thinking. Let's go to the next question, Rick. And again, if you're here today and you have a question, the number locally is 525-1859. Our toll-free number is 877-WAGP980. Or you can email us directly here into the studio at TBL, TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. All right, very good. Uh, We've got another listener who would like to know um, the following Why did Christ die a physical death to take the place of our spiritual death? Shouldn't he have died a spiritual death in order to take the place of ours? The wages of sin is death, a spiritual death. Everybody still dies a physical death, whether they sin or not. Well, um, you're making some presuppositions here that just aren't entirely accurate. Um, It is true for the wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But when the Bible speaks of the wages of sin being death, understand that the word death is not restricted only to physical death in the Bible. When God said to Adam, the day you eat from that tree, you will surely die. If I asked a group of people, did he die that day? People would probably shake their heads yes and no. And in one sense, they would both be correct. No, he didn't die a physical death that day in the sense that God buried him six feet under. But he died that day, that very day, just as God predicted in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And that he immediately died in his spirit. He died on the inside. The lights went out. And all of a sudden, Adam and Eve were aware of the fact that they were naked. Were they not naked before? Yes, they were. But they became aware of their nakedness and their shame. You know, people don't walk around naked because there's a sense of shame. Now, it is true there are some people who get so calloused and bruised in their conscience that they'll go to nude beaches and they're perverts. But for the most part, you know, people experience a sense of shame in their nakedness. Well, what were they clothed in? Well, probably like God, as Psalm 8 describes, in a robe of light. And so all of a sudden the lights go out. And they are aware physically that they're naked. They've died on the inside. Instead of wanting to seek God and walk with God in the cool of the day, they're hiding from God. So God comes into the garden and he says, where are you, Adam? Uh, That's not the voice of a detective. Uh, God never asks questions for information. He's an all-knowing God. But he does ask questions sometimes to reveal things that we need to understand. And Adam and Eve needed to understand where they were. Spiritually, they died immediately in the inside, and so they're hiding from God. They're afraid of God. That day, they began to age on the outside. Their bodies from that day on were getting older and older and older. Really, from the moment of conception, your heartbeat is a drumbeat to the grave. With every day, you get older and older and older and older and older. Now, when God created them, again, they weren't little babies. They were adults, but they began to age that day. 
that's uh, they were moving towards physical death. And unless the problem is correct, corrected before physical death, then it ex- people experience what the Bible refers to as the second death. It's described in the Old Testament in passages like Daniel 12. It's described in passages in the New Testament like Revelation 20. And if any man's name was not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, he was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So the second death is eternal separation from God. So when Jesus came to redeem us, he dealt with every dimension of death. Yes, he died a physical death on the cross. Uh, He paid our sin debt as he bore our sin in his body on the cross, but he died much more than a physical death. The Bible also teaches that he died a spiritual death. When he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus was separated from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. There was a perfect unbroken love relationship within the Godhead, within the Trinity. And really when Jesus is in Gethsemane, and he literally sweats blood. It's a, it's a physical um, aspect of what can happen in the human body when someone is under extreme pressure. And Jesus ex- literally sweat blood. The, the minute capillaries under his skin began to burst, and he sweat blood. And, and, of course, he's in prayer, and he said, Father, if possible, remove this cup from me. Well, what was the cup? You know, well, among other things, it was certainly not uh, Jesus dying on a cross. He practiced what he preached. He said, listen, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. He told us that we're blessed when men cast insult against us and persecuted us, you know, falsely and or for his name's sake, because our reward in heaven is absolutely great. So Jesus wasn't afraid of the physical torture of the cross. That's not what he was recoiling from. He was recoiling from the fact that as the holy son of God, one without sin, he was going to become sin. And that perfect intimate relationship that he had known with the father and with the spirit would be broken. And it would seem like I'm sure in eternity, um, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was experiencing spiritual death on the cross. And as an infinite person, he could accomplish in a finite period of time what we as finite people would take an eternity to do. So when a person is saved, they are immediately born again in their spirit. The lights go back on. Uh, the Holy Spirit is able to come and indwell us. We become a temple of the Holy Spirit. They're immediately saved in their spirit. They're progressively being saved in their soul and their mind, will, and emotions as God transforms us through the renewing of our minds and we're shaped into the image of Christ. And ultimately, physically in our very body, there's an aspect of salvation that we await and we will not see until the return of Christ when we receive a resurrected body like his. So you have some presuppositions that Jesus didn't die a spiritual death and he did. And uh, he did so as a substitute. When we come to Romans chapter 5 and Romans 7 and Romans 8, we're going to spend a lot of time on this very question. So hold on to it and listen online if you need to. Let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Um, A person writes, I want to confront a friend who I believe is teaching children something false. She believes that at the point of death, Jesus will come to a person one more time and give them a chance to be saved. 
I would like to show her from Scripture that this is not the case. There is a song called The Judas Tree that she brought the lyrics to me to prove her point. In essence, she's giving the children we teach that thought that, well, I don't have to accept Christ now. I'll do it right as I'm dying when he comes to me that one last time. I've spent some time this morning looking for passages supporting my viewpoint, but need some help. Thank you. Well, um, you know, the idea that people have a second chance is not a biblical doctrine. I usually, it's not put in these words. I don't know anything about this song, but I can tell you right now it's heretical. Remember, everything you believe, everything I believe is based on something. You either made it up, read it in a book, someone told you, but just believing it doesn't make it true. And so the question becomes, do we have as a basis of authority some way in which we can test uh, error and see if it is indeed error, a way that we can test what someone would call truth and see if indeed it is true. So is this a truth? No, it's, a, it's, it's an error. Inasmuch as it is appointed for a man, a man to die once, and after this comes judgment. So most people, <coughs> excuse me, most, most people would argue that uh, that's clear. And so what the more liberal theologians do, like Clark Pinnock did, he's dead now, but he taught that, okay, a person dies once, uh, but then he gets a second chance. Well, that's not what it says. It says it's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. That's what the Bible says. When you die, you're judged. And there's nothing in the Bible that says right before you die, you will have another opportunity. In fact, no, just the opposite is taught. There's an assumption throughout the Word of God that you may never have an opportunity than the opportunity you have right now as you're listening to my voice. That's why there's an urgency. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So the guy who says, well, you know, I'm going to receive Christ, but I'm just going to wait until that last moment when Jesus comes to me again and gives me a second chance. One, he is disobeying the plain teaching of Scripture that God wants you to be saved today. I remember years ago dealing with a Marine in my office and his questions were answered. And he said, I know I received Christ, need to receive Christ. I, I just don't want to do it now. Well, today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I said, if you were down there in Paris Island and the general said, hey, go get me that shovel and bring it here. And you said, general, you got two good legs. You get that shovel yourself. I'm not getting you that shovel. You're strong enough. You get the shovel. I said, well, what happened to you? He said, I, well, I'd, you know, I'd be in trouble. Yeah, you would be. And, uh, but you wouldn't do that because you see him as a person of authority and you respect authority and you respond to authority and you understand that there's consequences not to. Well, God is the authority of authorities. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And he wants you to be saved today. And every time you tell God no, you harden your heart. And your heart doesn't get softer for the next opportunity. It's actually a little more callous, a little bit harder. And it comes to a point where it will become unresponsive. And there are many passages in the Bible that are very clear that a person's heart can become unresponsive. For instance, uh, there is a day coming when the Antichrist will come upon the earth, whose coming is an accord, Paul says in Second Thessalonians 2, with all deception and wickedness of those who... Um, 
who who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so in order to be saved. And then he says, for this reason, God gives them over to a deluding influence that they might believe what's false. So there's an example where because a man told God no because they loved their sin so much, God judges them with a deluding influence. Jesus taught the same thing in Luke chapter 8 in verse 13. You tell me if there's a second chance or a chance right before you die. I don't care if it's before or after death. That's not to say that someone can't become a Christian on their deathbed. They can But there's nothing in Scripture that says that's going to happen. In fact, there's only one deathbed experience recorded in all the Bible. It's the thief on the cross. God gave us one so that we wouldn't despair, but he only gave us one so that none of us would presume. And in Luke 8, he says, And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. They get all excited. Again, he's not talking about true Christians. These have no firm root. They believe for a while. It's intellectual only. And in time of temptation, they fall away. So you got that category. And then he says, and those beside the road are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. So that, catch this, the word that was planted in their heart is taken away. God gives the devil permission to snatch it. Not because God isn't long-suffering and patient. He is. But you do not test the holy, sovereign God who's at work in your heart so that he, the devil, so that they, when the devil comes and snatches the word, so that they may not believe and be saved. That's what the Bible says there in Luke eight twelve. that they may not believe and be saved. There can come a point in an individual's life because they have put God off and put God off. They said, no, 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 no. God finally says, I'll give you your wish. And they will be confirmed in their unbelief for all of eternity. So there's an urgency as you read the pages of the New Testament to respond now. Because number one, you don't have the promise that you'll be alive tomorrow, that Jesus might not come tonight, or that he will still be at work in your life where you could respond. All right, let's go to the next question. All right. um, We've actually had this question a couple of times before, but there's a portion at the end that's different. Uh, How can Christians in good conscience vote for Barack Obama? This person writes, I know he professes to be a Christian. However, there's no evidence in his life. Prior to his election, he attended a church that spewed hatred and and division from the pulpit. He doesn't attend a church in uh, the white office, uh, uh, while in office, rather, uh, and spurns the uh, word of God by promoting homosexual marriage and abortion. He promotes Islam while persecuting Christianity. Ramadan dinner in the White House, but no National Day of Prayer. Now this is the different part. Have you heard of Bishop Jackson and what he is saying about President Obama? I have heard of Bishop Jackson, and um, he's he's a brother in Christ, very strong uh, brother in Christ. He doesn't like to call himself an African American. He says, "I'm not an African American. I'm an American," <laughs> you know, which is uh, an interesting perspective and twist on things. But he is—he's uh, a very strong believer, Harvard graduate. A very uh, sound thinker. And so, Rick, you pulled up a clip by him. Let's go ahead and play that. Uh, Let me let me let our listeners hear it from him. My name is Bishop E.W. Jackson, chairman of Ministers Taking a Stand with a message to Christians in the black community. It is time to end the slavish devotion to the Democrat Party. They have insulted us, used us and manipulated us. They have saturated the black community with ridiculous lies 
unless we support the Democrat Party, we will be returned to slavery. We will be robbed of voting rights. The Martin Luther King holiday will be repealed. They think we are stupid and that these lies will hold us captive while they violate everything we believe as Christians. The Democrat Party has created an unholy alliance between certain so-called civil rights leaders and Planned Parenthood, which has killed unborn black babies by the tens of millions. Planned Parenthood has been far more lethal to black lives than the KKK ever was. And the Democrat Party and their black civil rights allies are partners in this genocide. The Democrat Party has equated homosexuality with being black, which is another outrageous lie. They can keep their homosexuality private. You and I cannot hide being black. I need not recount to you the painful history of slavery, Jim Crow, lynchings, and sterilizations, all because of skin color. Anyone who dares equate the so-called gay rights movement to the history of black Americans is exploiting the black community. They say opposition to same-sex marriage is the same as opposition to interracial marriage. That is an insult to human intelligence. It is a lie. No Christian should support this. Yet the Democrat Party has now declared same-sex marriage an official part of its platform. And black Christians remain in that party? The civil rights establishment has embraced the lies and betrayed the black community and God Almighty for 30 pieces of silver from the Democrat Party. We as Christians ought to know better. Shame on us for allowing ourselves to be sold to the highest bidder. We belong to God. Our ancestors were sold against their will centuries ago, but we're going to the slave market voluntarily today. Yes, it's just that ugly. What do you call it when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and my sins and paid the price for our freedom and you join in covenant with a political party that doesn't even want God mentioned in their platform and gets offended at the very mention of Jesus' name? If your pastor tells you to vote for a party that disrespects Jesus, you need to leave that church. Black pastors are also going to have to answer for whether they serve Jesus or the Democrat Party. The black community will never prosper by betraying God and following leadership that curries the favor of the Democrat Party. It is time for Christians to have the faith and courage to refuse to associate with a political party that has over the years become anti-Christian, anti-church, anti-Bible, anti-life, anti-family, and anti-God. The Democrat Party is also becoming increasingly anti-Israel. And God said, I will curse those that curse Israel. Do you want to be cursed with them? It is time to come out of the Democrat Party and to refuse to support its candidates in their rebellion against God. It's not about party, but principle. It's not about race, but righteousness. And you will stand before God to give an account for your choices and motives. We don't need the Democrat Party or any party. We need God. God will take care of us. It's been a long time coming, but the time has come to take a stand. Come out from among them. Exodus now. Well, I thought you, I thought you might like to hear that from one of our black brothers. And uh, I, I thought he had a lot of good things to say. You know, again, to me, it's not an issue of Republican versus Democrat. It's an issue of who is going to best represent 
our God-given values? Who's going to protect God, so to speak? Who's going to represent God's values? Yeah, the question that came last week is how can a Christian, it was just the opposite, flip side, how can a Christian in good conscience vote for uh, Romney, who's a Mormon? Uh, And again, Mormons are, you know, not believers. But again, to me, it's the lesser of two evils. There's a lot of things about our president whom I pray for, and I hope you do. And you are commanded to pray for our president, whether you're, you know, a Democrat, independent, Republican, Tea Party, Green Party, whatever party you can think of. God calls us to pray for those who are in leadership above us. And there are many things about our president that I greatly admire. I admired his family life and structure far more than I did the last Republican who ran for president. But, you know, the sad thing is, is that he has changed his view, especially on homosexuality. He has come out now and said that you can define two men or two women being uh, together as a legitimate marriage. That's against God's will and God's plan. And there's never been a society that has ever been sustained or survived that has taken that. And remember, the next president's going to replace probably three Supreme Court justices. Those guys, some of them look like they're on life support. I mean, they're on the edge. And if uh, we have, you know, men on the Supreme Court who so interpret our Constitution to protect homosexuality as a minority status when God calls it a sin, an abomination, unnatural, Uh, He tells us that laws are to be written against that behavior, not in favor of it. And he couples that with perjurers and kidnappers and drunkards and so forth. They're all grouped together that laws are to be written against that kind of thing to protect a society. When we start writing laws in favor, we are in big, big trouble. So there are issues that are very, very important to us as evangelical Christians in terms of marriage, in terms of uh, the nation of Israel. Genesis, you know, teaches that I'll bless them that, you know, blesses Israel and I'll curse those that that curse Israel. And I just hope and pray that, you know, if President Obama is reelected, that he will stand behind Israel because we won't last long if he doesn't. There's very few reasons for God to bless us any longer as a nation. Uh, They're fast dissipating. We used to be the number one sending country on the planet in terms of missionaries to get the gospel out. Most of our missionary force is retiring. We're now 10th in terms of sending people. Other countries of the world are far more blessable than we are in many of their positions. And so I just uh, hope and pray that you'll vote your conscience, uh, that it's not an issue of being a Republican or a Democrat. It's an issue of voting your conscience, and sometimes it's an issue of voting the less of two evils. Now, some would differ with me on that, and they'll say, well, I'm not going to vote for President Obama or Romney. And, um, you know, you've made a vote. But if that's what you do in your conscience, then I would honor that, and I would respect that. But seek the Lord. Um, In Republicans, sometimes they need to vote Democrat in some issues because there are some Democrats that are pro-life and pro-marriage and pro-Israel. So forget the party. Ask what pleases the Lord. God bless you. Have a great day.